the National Archives podcast series, an overview of the newly released files from 1985 and 1986, with contemporary record specialists Simon Demissi and Mark Dunton. I'm joined by Mark Dunton and Simon Demissi, contemporary record specialists at the National Archives, to give an overview of the newly released files from 1985 and 1986. Starting with you, Mark, what do you think this release reveals about this era? Well, um, this latest release of Cabinet papers and Prime Minister's Office records from 85 to 1986 um, covers the sort of midpoint of the Thatcher Premiership. And, uh, you know, if, if, you, uh, if this period is beyond your living memory, um, you might well be tempted to think that the files would reflect the Thatcher Revolution going at full steam. Um, the Conservatives had won two general election victories in 1979 and 1983, and the miners' strike had been defeated. So you might well think that this would be a, a period of uh, consolidation, you know, as the government then moves on to uh, the full range of privatisations. Um, after all, uh, during this period, um, yuppies were becoming a cultural phenomenon, uh, the upwardly mobile generation, and um, disposable incomes for many people were beginning to rise. Um, however, it wasn't really a sunny picture after all. Um, the files reveal that this, this period was far from being uh, plain sailing for the government. And so uh, a lot of the files do concentrate on economic policy and we see the emergence of certain issues coming up for, uh, as you said, during this midpoint of the Thatcher Premiership. Can you tell us more about what we get from these files in this release? Yeah, sure. Um, I think you know, what the files show is there was a great deal of worry and concern um, and you can see it expressed by advisers, Treasury officials, Cabinet ministers and the Prime Minister herself. And it's a concern, if there's a theme to it, I'd say it's a theme of a worry about losing control. Losing control of public expenditure, inflation, the money supply. And there's also an awful lot of concerns about high interest rates and, you know, shall we raise them again or not? And um, sterling crises, you know, the dollar was very strong, the pound was quite weak at times. Um, also um, worry about a credit boom and, um, and also concern about um, high level of unemployment and that remained a stubbornly high level. So you get all these concerns and they're often expressed rather graphically by Mrs Thatcher's marginalia in the Prime Minister's office files. For example, um, there's a memo from uh, Professor Alan Walters who gave her a great deal of economic advice. Um, and it's dated 4th of June 1985 and his memo is all about monetary control and Mrs Thatcher has written on it I had no idea that we had let things go to such an extent and the next day she replies to Walters in a handwritten note and says I am very worried about M3 uh, that's a measure of the money supply the bill mountain, the rate of inflation and rising property prices that's uh, from a file, Prem 19, stroke 1457. The, uh, many of these um, worries, you can, you can see, are, are quite uh, familiar you know, to anyone that's uh, familiar with uh, the sort of uh, 
problems that go round in cycles, really, in, in, the, in British politics and economics. Uh, Chancellor Nigel Lawson had some particular concerns we can see in some of the records here. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, uh, Nigel Lawson uh, had some particular concerns and they're, they're very much related to rates reform, which was a subject very dear to Mrs Thatcher's heart. It's, 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 it's actually quite interesting to reflect on this because, um, of course, what became known as the poll tax uh, was to become a major, major issue um, towards the end of the Thatcher Premiership. And um, it's really in around 1985 that the uh, origins of this are being discussed by cabinet ministers. There's a proposal for a flat rate um, charge, which this becomes known as the poll tax. And uh, we can see in a memo which uh, appears in um, cab 134 stroke 4878, um, a very strongly worded memo by Nigel Lawson where he expresses his criticism of this um, emerging proposal for a poll tax. Um, he, he warns that um, a flat rate poll tax would be politically unsustainable and um, he writes also of the horrifying impact on certain households. Lawson was much keener himself on a system of local property taxation, you know, sort of bans relating to the value of your property um, to replace the rating system. Um, but, you know, but his, his words are very strong. You know, he says um, the proposal for a poll tax would be completely unworkable and politically catastrophic. But when the poll tax is then debated by the, uh, the relevant cabinet committee, there's very little support for Lawson's views the whole business trundles on, but uh, it seems that the uh, the criticisms that he made weren't really supported by colleagues in the ultimate analysis, and so, you know, the the, the process sort of just went on really, and uh, became very unpopular, of course, later in the 1980s. And there are a number of other topics covered in this release which focus on sort of home affairs, managing social order. Um, we see sort of football hooliganism. Um, what do these files tell us about how the government handled these particular issues? Simon, you read some of these files. Uh, what can you say about them? Yes, that's right. Mark talked very nicely there about many of the issues that some of us may not have been aware of being so prevalent at the time. And, and that's very much the case when it comes to uh, social issues and, and home affairs. Um, the miners' strike, as Mark mentioned, came to an end in early 1985, but it was not kind of uh, greeted with either gloating nor a great deal of confidence. Um, the senior cabinet ministers were, in fact, kind of preparing for the possibility of a, a further strike in 1986 and 1987. So they were far from confident that that issue had been resolved once and for all. And you mentioned there football violence and disorder, which was really a, a very kind of visual representation, or seen by some as a visual representation of a breakdown in society. This was also accompanied with a connected but, but not but a distinct issue of football fan safety in stadia, which was marked most obviously and horrifically in the Bradford fire of May 1985. Um, the violence represented in such pitched battles between fans like Millwall and Luton 
and also uh, Liverpool and Juventus fans at the European Cup final at Heysel in May 1985, really kind of showing this worst representation of, um, of football fan culture and also seen by senior cabinet ministers as the worst representation of Britain abroad. People were watching these images and, and drawing conclusions about what that said about the country. So what we see in the files released today is cabinet ministers and the prime minister showing a real interest in trying to solve these dual problems of football fan uh, behaviour and also of safety in stadia. And you see there's a, a, a huge amount of discussion. The Prime Minister calls ver- various uh, meetings with their leaders in football authorities, such as the FA and the Football League, and also um, even as going as far to meet uh, football correspondents to try and understand their perceptions of what happened at, at some of these events. And they really gathered a lot of information, a lot of, a lot of examples of, of what was happening in Stadia and a lot of the problems of infrastructure, but, but very few answers. It was very difficult for them to uh, implement changes, not least because they saw in a certain degree of intransigence with, uh, within those football authorities, football clubs not wishing to spend money on CCTV and, and so forth, and, and a, essentially a blanket ban on a suggestion of football fan membership schemes, membership card schemes. So it was very difficult for their government. They saw an issue. They wanted, uh, Bernard Ingham said it, this is a football league's problem and they should solve it. But they weren't able to influence it as they were with so many other issues uh, around the country. So it's a yet another example of this difficulty of grappling with a, with a problem. The government was able to um, implement some changes. There was the ban on the sale of alcohol in football stadia. But some of the wider issues that they wanted to implement, they were not able to. There was a seeming air of desperation about some of the government's action, actions, particularly in trying to deal with uh, hooliganism via the media. There was a campaign launched by Bernard Ingham called Goalies Against Hoolies, which was, it was seemed sensible because the goalkeepers were so often the first line of uh, first in line for attack from hooligans. So it was decided that it would be a good idea to get the Manchester United and England goalkeeper Gary Bailey to interview the Prime Minister. And actually this interview did happen. I've seen, the, the <laughs> not in the files released today, but elsewhere that this interview did occur. But it was very interesting to see the thought process about it and that the government clearly wanted to try and influence behaviour via as many routes as possible. And similarly, it was suggested that the Prime Minister might appear in Shoot magazine, but this idea didn't last very long because it was deemed to be an inappropriate platform for the Prime Minister, what with it being directed to 11 to 16-year-olds. So, you know, it's a a very interesting array of attempts to to solve the problem, I suppose, but none of them seemingly get get to the bottom of the issue, particularly of this stadium infrastructure and... Unfortunately, it took another disaster for that to be solved. Moving on to more international incidents and how the government dealt with those, we have various examples, you know, Chernobyl, um, issues to do with nuclear energy, but also the defection of KGB officer Oleg Gordievsky. Um, what does that reveal about Thatcher's government and how they dealt with those more wider influencing policies? Yes, the defection of... Uh, Oleg Gordievsky was a, a, a really significant. He was the head of the KGB in London 
um, and he defected to the United Kingdom. And this is obviously a, a, a massive deal. And it actually it immediately, with the information that he provided, immediately led to the expulsion of 25 Soviet officials once the UK government became aware of how much espionage was going on. So well, it's immediately obvious how significant this move was. But what it, the release of the file actually tells us is this really kind of personal relationship that develops between Gordievsky and the Prime Minister. Gordievsky wrote, wrote to the Prime Minister saying that without his family, who were still in the Soviet Union, his life had no meaning. And the reply from the Prime Minister to Gordievsky is really, really quite involved, very empathetic. She, she sympathises, she expresses her concern. She says that, she says, uh, actually, this is a direct quote, she says, having children of my own, I know the kind of thoughts and feelings which are going through your mind each and every day. And there is always hope. So she's really empathising. She really understands the situation he's in, but is trying to help him get through those difficult times. And he replies thanking her and, and wishing her all the best. But it's a really, a really fascinating indication of, of where she uh, where she's, does see a, very, you know, a personal relationship helping someone in a very difficult time. As for Chernobyl, this uh, disaster in, in the Soviet Union in April of 1986, we see in the uh, cabinet minutes in particular uh, the government's uh, immediate reaction to it and concerns about the fallout and whether there would be environmental effect in the United Kingdom. And this is also so- somewhat symptomatic of government thinking quite carefully about nuclear issues. Uh, there are other files released today talking about uh, cellar field and the use of nuclear energy, concerns at a local level about what effect this might have on people's health. And it's really indicative of how important the government sees public opinion, that they, they take so many steps to try, and, to try and move it, essentially, into a position that they're comfortable with. So they try to gather as much scientific evidence as possible, the best scientific evidence available, and also uh, launch several inquiries just to, just to assuage any fears amongst the public about this form of energy. And um, it's really indicative of kind of the early stages of the kind of green movement where uh, there are concerns about the environment really becoming quite significant in politics. Also included in this release are Home Office files, which highlights issues around chemical weapons policy. Um, do they give any further insight into the gov- how the government handles such sort of global policies and global events? Yes, there are, yes, indeed. There are one or two very interesting files about um, chemi- the chemical warfare threat um, from the Soviet Union. This is something that hasn't really, this has not really been in the public domain before, to the best of my knowledge. These files, which sort of date from uh, 1983, 1984, what we learned from them is that um, government ministers were concerned because the Soviet Union had a very, apparently, a very large and a growing capability to, uh, to wage chemical warfare, at least in theory. The worry is that there is a threat to the United Kingdom, particularly from uh, nerve gases, which, uh, you know, designed to kill if uh, inhaled or if there's contact with the skin. Ministers don't know with precision really but there's an estimate, a guesstimate that the Soviet Union has a large 
chemical weapons stockpile, including over 300,000 tonnes of nerve agents and a considerable delivery capability. In contrast, ministers are saying that NATO has no retaliatory chemical weapons capability, um, so there's no uh, credible deterrent. That's one of the phrases they use. So this is really the nub of the matter. Really, ministers are just sort of trying to weigh up all the options. They're aware that NATO and the Warsaw Pact are parties to a 1925 Geneva Protocol, which bans the use of chemical weapons um, between the signatories, except in retaliation. But that, that protocol um, does not prohibit development, production or stockpiling on chemical weapons. The file discusses, you know, possible targets in the UK that could be attacked by chemical weapons. The Defence Secretary uh, in 84 says, in the absence of an adequate retaliatory capability is a major gap in NATO's armoury. It's proposed that further discussions are held with the Americans about their intentions. Are they going to modernise their chemical weapons capability? that this issue becomes quite live because there are negotiations happening at this very time in 84 um, on, on this subject. It's said that the UK should take an active part um, in, the, in the discussion and that uh, modern nuclear, biological and chemical equipment should be issued to servicemen and essential civilians in British forces Germany and to some 140,000 servicemen in the UK with a NATO role. I think another thing that sort of influences this is that the, the, the use of chemical weapons in the Iran-Iraq war had helped to sort of alter the public understanding of the threat. Whether or not the UK acquired a chemical weapons capability was not a decision that could be addressed um, back in sort of 1984 and that's as far as the file sort of extends really into early 84. Five. Ostensibly, there's no change to British policy, but there are, they are making preparations, and that includes shelters against chemical weapons attack. And there are some examples of illustrations of these shelters. Um, and it, I think what it gets it brings across to you is how, what a chilling prospect it would be, um, and what an awful prospect it would be to be cooped up in one of these shelters, you know, in the event of a chemical weapons attack. Um, it just sort of brings it home. So we see a range of issues covered by these files, but we also get an insight into uh, Thatcher's leadership style, um, particularly in the marginalia of the correspondence. Is there anything that particularly stands out in this release about how she handles various situations? Yeah, well, um, you know, there are some prime examples of Thatcher marginalia again in this release. Um, and um, I mean, I suppose some of the ones that really stand out is where she's being really quite outspoken and direct. And um, you know, for example, uh, there's uh, a, a, one of the files to do with the uh, negotiations towards the Anglo-Irish Agreement, which was another major event towards the end of 1985. You know, the negotiations go over several months. It's a very complex process. In one of the files. Um, she, uh, she, you know, she comments uh, in a very forthright way on a Robert Armstrong memo. Robert Armstrong was the cabinet secretary, and she's written across this memo, you know, no, several times, and 
Um, she uh, says, I'm not prepared to go along with uh, you know, the, the, these things or so- something to that effect. At one point she says, um, I would not dream of putting my name to such terrible English. So uh, that was quite a, a strong remark, really, about Robert Armstrong's memo. And there are other examples where, um, you know, for example, uh, something going back to, uh, I think, uh, 1983, actually, which was a visit to Northern Ireland. Some, one particular regiment had conveyed their concerns about um, unsatisfactory overboots. And um, Mrs. Thatcher takes up the issue with the MOD. The MOD write her a letter on the issue. You know, she comments, and you see it again in that famous blue felt-tip pen, this is a, a bureaucratic gem. I will show it to Anthony Jay. Anthony Jay, the author of uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. And she writes also, you know, the answer won't do. Send it back. It's, it's typical forthright staff. It really sort of shows that, um, you know, her, her, the strength of her opinions and convictions. Um, and we see one in one of the files, um, mountain tensions and a series of heated exchanges between the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition. Yes. Um, is there anything um, about that correspondence that really gives us more insight into their relationship? Because it's, it's, hard, to, um, it's hard to comment, really, on, on the ins and outs of their relationship as a whole, but certainly... It is um, a rather extraordinary exchange of letters. This follows um, the prosecution of Clive Ponting. Clive Ponting was a a senior official at the MOD. He had leaked some papers which were associated with the General Belgrano, or rather the handling of um, Tam Dayel's inquiries about the General Belgrano. And he had actually confessed... Clive Ponting had confessed that he had leaked these papers and they, they'd ended up in the press. There was a decision to prosecute him under the Official Secrets Act, which duly went ahead. Now, then the focus shifted to Mrs Thatcher's role in this. The question arose of, was Mrs Thatcher directly involved in the decision to prosecute him or had it all been handled independently by you know, the Director of Public Prosecutions, and etc.? In the House of Commons, Neil Kinnock made a statement uh, to the effect that he did not believe the Right Honourable Lady when she said that she was not involved in this decision to prosecute. And this leads to a, 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 um, you know, a very heated exchange, set of exchanges between the Prime Minister and the Leader of, of the Opposition. Mrs Thatcher's um, response to Neil Kinnock's um, House of Commons accusation, if you like, is that uh, your charge is utterly untrue. If you cannot substantiate it, and you cannot, I must demand that you withdraw it and apologise unreservedly and immediately. That's on the 12th of February, 1985. And then Neil Kinnock responds and says, um, you know, my words stand, you know, until you give me a more sort of satisfactory answer. And the exchanges go backwards and forwards between them. There is a lot of tension there. And in fact, the whole matter is unresolved. It's left hanging in the air because neither um, Mrs. Thatcher or Neil Kinnock will really budge from their positions. So, you know, it's certainly a a very tense series of exchanges. And um, what about uh, other relationships? So, for example, with Michael Heseltine, we saw... um, the Westland helicopters issue uh, back in the mid-80s. Is there anything in the files about that in this release? 
Yes, um, you know, there are a couple of very detailed files which give the background to the crisis, and you can see from those files the mounting, again, there are mounting tensions, really, between government ministers on the issue. You know, there's, there's Hesseltine, who's keen on us. It's basically to do with an ailing helicopter company based in Yeovil. Hesseltine is keen on a European consortium rescuing it, but the other possibility is that... Um, there might be um, an American firm, Sikorsky. Fiat are also kind of involved as well. And the, there is this view that um, really, you know, it should be left to the market. This is the sort of Thatcherite view, if you like. It should be left to the market. And if an American company takes over Westlands, well, you know, so be it sort of thing. You can see government ministers almost falling into two camps on the issue. So you get, um, as I say, these sort of mounting differences uh, revealed in uh, two files in the Prime Minister's series about Westlands. And then, of course, we get the Cabinet Minutes. So we get the uh, Cabinet Minutes of the famous um, meeting where Michael Heseltine, Secretary of State for Defence, walks out of uh, Cabinet and says, I must leave this Cabinet. Now, those minutes have been published before, a few years ago in response to a freedom of information request by the information rights uh, people. However, now what we've got are the preceding cabinet minutes. We've got more of the context in which these, in which that event happened. So it does help us to piece together a few more pieces of the jigsaw. Perhaps more files may be released in the future. Is there anything else covered um, within these newly released files from 1985 and 1986? Yes, there are several uh, other subjects are, are touched upon. Um, there's the, there's a, a series of files that you could loosely uh, place under the title of terrorism, um, particularly uh, Irish terrorism. There's a file about the, the aftermath of the Brighton bomb, and there's some discussion as well in another file about possibility of introducing capital punishment for terrorists. There's also a, another kind of international element. There's, there's further representations of the Thatcher-Reagan relationship and uh, several, other, several other papers on, on, the relation, on, on the situation in the international sphere. But I think uh, what's really important about this files is, is what Mark mentioned earlier, this uh, representation of, of actually a more sensitive and more difficult time for the government than is often portrayed. Uh, this, this, this era of striped shirts and, and uh, shoulder padded dresses actually being one of intense difficulty on, in, in a political and social uh, way for the government and social unrest in inner cities for yet another representation of that. This release of files... Uh, what we see today is a release of files that shows us a government tackling with a, a vast array of different issues in 1985 and 86. A selection of newly released files from 1985 and 1986 have been digitised and are available on the National Archives website from the 30th of December 2014. They are free to download for a month. This podcast was recorded on the 16th of December 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>